As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, we've been talking a lot about tech, startups, VC, but you know, this space is so big and it's so opaque because we don't really know what's going on with VC fund performance. We don't really know what's going on with startup earnings or most likely startup uh, losses that I feel like it can never hurt to get more perspective. Yeah, we've had this conversation before. You know, it's easy enough for a publicly listed stock. You just look at a line on a screen and you get some sense of how things are going. Much, much harder in venture capital world. And then just to add to that, you also have this really interesting culture and dynamic around VC and mm. angel investing, where it seems like everyone is incentivized to pour more money into stuff and to get the valuations up. And then the question is, what happens when that dynamic starts to go away or at least becomes a little bit more challenged, which is what has happened over the past few months? Right. All kinds of interesting dynamics. Publicly listed companies like Amazon or Facebook, they might come on struggling times, but I don't think anyone really doubts the viability of the business. With startups, of course, some of these companies may just not have business models that work. They may be a long way from anything resembling profitability and have, might have to make tough decisions about growth versus survival. Mm. All kinds of sort of tricky questions arise in the private tech world that you just don't see when we're talking about public stocks. For the exactly. So let's talk about it more. I want to jump right in. We have a big guest today. We are going to be speaking with Jason Calacanis. He is a popular podcaster on the All In podcast. He is an author. He is an angel investor who has done over 350 deals over 11 years. Very outspoken. One of the most Former journalist, too. Former journalist, former blogger, specifically, mm. over many years. And he's going to talk to us about the state of the world. Jason, uh, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Oh, big fan of the show. Thanks for having me. You know, I DM'd you, uh, you know, a while back about having you on. And then I looked in our DM history. We haven't really talked that much. But I saw like in like 2009, you're like, hey, I'm going to be in New York and meeting some people for dim sum. Do you want to come? And I don't think I responded or I definitely didn't yeah. go. But I should have because you've had like a pretty great like. 13 years or 10 years since then. So I should have been your it's friend It's such a humble time. brag. I was too busy to respond <laughs> yeah. to the big uh, angel investor yeah, that DM'd I, me to grab lunch. I blew it because you've, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here, but you've, uh, you've yeah, blown well, up. So you had a good, uh, you've this had a good is, run. Uh, this is my credo as an angel investor, actually. I have uh, 
20 or so people in my investment company launch and the syndicate.com. And the first thing I teach new investors is never underestimate anyone because we will see people from, you know, a, a random assortment of beginnings and weird products and terrible ideas and and uh, all of a sudden they change the world. And so, you know, if you if you look at the first version of like Uber, the app, Travis hated it. You know, it was like really ugly and you know, he was just beside himself at, at what, how janky it was. What was Uber and, worth when you invested in it? Uh, I think that round was four and a half million dollars. Oh. Yeah, five million dollars, uh, something so like that. And Com.com well was worth five million dollars when we invested. Density was around four million dollars. Density.io, uh, that's another unicorn we invested in. So in that cohort, when I started angel investing, was right after the great financial crisis, 2009, 2010. What happened was I... Um, was running a company called Mahalo.com, which is now called Inside.com. It's still running, doing millions of dollars a year in revenue. And Sequoia, Ruloff Botha, who was the latest partner there, he was he had just started as a partner there, working with Michael Moritz and Doug Leone. And they said, you know, you introduced us to all these really cool companies. Would you be a scout for us? And I said, how, did that, how would that work? And they said, well, we'll give you money and then we'll split the returns 50-50. And I said, well, don't you get like 20% and 2% like management fees. I said, oh, we get more than that. We get like 30% worth Sequoia. Uh, you know, we're, we're pretty good at this. But this is going to be small potatoes. So we're just going to ask you and uh, Sam Altman and, you know, this other person to be scouts for us. And Sam famously did Stripe as an investment in the scouts program. And I did Uber and Thumbtack and a couple of others. And three of the first seven deals I did became unicorns. So you mentioned Credo at the very beginning. And before we yeah. had this conversation, I was looking on your uh, Twitter account and you tweeted something that intrigued me. You referred to a basic technique that you learned in the dot-com era, trust the founder, but believe the product and customers. What did you mean by that and how is it relevant now? That's a great question. So, you know, when you're a journalist, which is where I started in the 90s when I was covering the dot-com era, people were really well media trained. They were spinning, you know, really crazy yarns and I was just trying to figure out, like, is Scott Kernett from About.com the real deal? And is, you know, this woman from my village the real deal? Or are they, you know, uh, charlatans? And, you know, is this double click thing that Kevin O'Connor is doing? Is it real? You know, that was kind of the job of a journalist, ask questions. And then maybe when we actually use the products and when we actually talk to customers or we talk to employees, we actually then got the ground truth. And so it was that skill set I learned as a journalist doing Silicon Alley Reporter, my second magazine when I was in my 20s in New York in the 90s, which was awesome. New York in the 90s was fantastic. <laughs> um, and so Oddly when I went enough, into we, angel we investing- we had a very similar conversation on All Thoughts just recently mm. about yeah. clubbing We in had the, the Globe.com CEO. Did you know Oh, him? Stephen Patternot? Yeah, yeah, we had Patternot on the show recently. Yeah, uh, I got some good stories about those guys. Todd Kreisman and Stephen Patternot. I covered them. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you that story in a second. But anyway, y you have to look at the reality of what a startup is. A startup is a group of people, a founder plus whoever they can recruit, building a product that then has some contact with customers. And when evaluating startups, it's important to meet great founders and hear what they have to say. I would argue it's more important to use the product and talk to the customers. And that has been something that in crypto as one example, or the dot-com era as another example, or in a boom market that people forget. 
And so, you know, you, you could trust but verify is a really good management philosophy. And this is my philosophy of startups, which is, yeah, sure, talk to the founder, but don't forget to talk to the customers and don't forget to use the product. Can I ask a question about now that you've seen several cycles of booms and busts and participated in them? And if my memory is correct, and tell me if I'm wrong, my memory is that your tech magazine in the late 90s Either you held on to it too long, you didn't sell at the top, and so you had a chance to make insane amounts of money, but you held on too long, and then it went to zero. Yep. And then you did another media thing in the early 2000s, Weblogs Inc., which kind of competed with Gawker. And I kind of felt like my thought was at the time you sold too early or that you overcorrected from the magazine experience because you're like, well, I just got to get some. Yeah. Uh, is that correct? And sort of like, what did you learn Pretty about climbing booms and busts from those experiences? Yeah. As many um, folks who have gotten rich said, you know, like, uh, how did you get rich? Selling too soon uh, is like a really good credo as well. So you learn these heuristics over time. And so Alan Meckler had offered me $20 million for Silicon Alley Reporter, you know, before the bus, I didn't take it. I was just a poor kid from Brooklyn. But, you know, Silicon Alley Reporter was at $11 million in revenue. I had 75 employees and I built it off my credit cards. So I was kind of on a rush and I had done New York, you know, to the nines, like, you know, was on Charlie Rose, had a 10,000 word New Yorker profile. I mean, I had checked every box in terms of, you know, feeling my oats as a, you know, the next media mogul. You know, I felt pretty good about things. And then the dot-com bust happened and I wound up selling the assets of Silicon Alley Reporter to Dow Jones and got two years of salary. They fired me a week after I sold it to them and paid out my two-year contract because they didn't want me there because I was too much of a, too uh -huh. much trouble. And then I started Weblogs Inc. And when I started Weblogs Inc., the goal was to create 100 blogs and put ads on them. And the idea of putting ads on blogs was, you know, antithetical to the concept. And people like Dave Weiner and other folks were like, hey, you can't have ads on blogs. And I was like, I think... We could on a web blog have ads. And Nick Denton and I started going at it, competing against each other. And AOL offered me $30 million for an 18-month-old company. And I was like, well, that's 10 million more than I was going to get for Silicon Alley Reporter. So, and I only had one investor, Mark Cuban. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to secure the bag. And uh, Good call. You know, that's how I got my first chip. And it was one of the greatest trades I ever did. Now, Denton wound up selling for $150 million, but then gave it all, all right. to- Peter uh, Oh, no, Hulk Hogan Hulk, and Hulk, Peter Thiel. And I, Hogan, yeah. I would guess via Peter I'm gonna Thiel. guess that Nick and I did about the same <laughs> on exits for that. Except he spent 10 years of his life on it and uh, two years on a trial, and I did it for 18 months. So there's also the value of time. What was the transition like from journalist mm. to angel investor? Because I imagine journalism probably gives you a decent set of skill sets to do due diligence on a company and do your research and, you know go out and meet and talk to people. But on the other hand, I imagine there's quite a bit of maybe culture clash between really cynical journalists. I was just going to say, and, like, we're also cynical yeah, and, and assume like, everything is a optimistic, changing yeah. the world, Silicon Valley types, or at least that's how I imagine it. That is actually the perfect summary. And uh, I was just talking to Molly Wood about that today because she just did this transition. So I would say if you're a, a good journalist, like you know, really good journalist who knows how to answer questions, knows how to understand a story, triangulate the truth by talking to multiple sources. I think you start on second base. I think you're basically 40, 50% of the way there. Uh, and if you have a network, you might be 60% of the way there. If you got a brand, you might be 60% of the way there. So the only thing you have to learn, you're exactly correct. As journalists, we're telling stories and yeah, we want to be cynical. We want to really assume that what's being told to us is some percentage of the truth, but 
Rashomon style, like the Kurosawa film, there's usually three versions of the truth, yours, mine, and the actual truth. Or there could be even more versions in a story that's super complicated, like say Theranos or whatever. So you start triangulating the truth. And that goes back to you know the tweet that you quoted earlier, which is, hey, for me, there's really three things here. There's the team, there's the product, there's the customers. Now, there could also be competitors in there. So you start triangulating around those things. You do have to switch from, and it happens organically, because when you start working with founders and backing them, you then put yourself in a position of power. You put yourself in a position to be the person who is not telling their story, but enabling their story. And then you move from this sort of cynical approach to this optimistic approach. Now, the fact is, half of the founders you'll meet will be some version of incompetent, not ready, you know, delusional, or, you know, in some small percentage of cases, you know, frauds, crooks, charlatans. And then the top half will be earnest, qualified, and, you know, ready to change the world. And so your job is to figure out which which group you're betting on and making sure that you invest in the right group. And you're not going to get it right every time, uh, but you do have to come to it with, with a radical optimism. And so you are basically making a long list of things that can go wrong in a business, and then a short list of things that can go right. And then if you're really trying to go for an outlier success, like a meditation app or you know, a cab company, which were my two biggest hits to date, you're going to have to say, okay, I'm going to rip up the list of what could go wrong and just assume the founder will figure out ways to navigate that with their team and then look at what could go right. And if you figure out what can go right, then you could hit a 100x, a 1,000x, a 2,000x investment. And that power law is what venture is about. You mentioned power law distribution. And this is something that has come up a number of times when we've been talking about VC lately. This idea that the model basically rests on, you know, you you throw money at a bunch of companies and you're really hoping that one of them will hit it out of the park. And I, I guess my question is, given the current dynamics, you know, it seems like some of the froth is going out of the market. Is that sustainable? Like, should you always be aiming for the biggest company or could it make sense in VC land to maybe aim for not unicorns, but like nice looking horses with medium growth trajectories Hmm. that do well, but aren't necessarily superstars? Yeah, it's just not possible to make the single and double concept work. Um, Single and doubles is what public market investors do or late stage investors do. And all the froth is out of the market. And uh, we've we've now cut into the, we're now pouring out the cappuccino. So it, it's really been quite a uh, contraction now. It's, it is unbelievable how hard this has fallen for certain companies and how far it's corrected. And that's the best time to invest. So absolutely, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not happy about a downturn, obviously, but I am uh, extraordinarily optimistic about the returns we'll see on the companies we invest in over the next three years. This is going to be the best possible time to put money to work. And I'm I'm redoubling my efforts, trying to invest in twice as many companies in the coming years because valuations have come back down to reality. And I'd say two out of three companies I wanted to invest in over the last two or three years, if I didn't invest, the number one reason I didn't invest was because of valuation. Uh, the company's just, the math didn't make sense to invest in a company that has no product in market at a 50 to $100 million valuation, or if it's crypto, it might be 100 to a $1 billion valuation, which just defies logic. And I, you know, I grew up with mentors like Michael Moritz, Doug Leone, Bill Gurley, you know, George Zachary, people who had been in the game for a long time. And then my contemporaries and I, Chamath, David Sachs, et cetera, you know, who, who grew up investing together over the last decade, 
we all looked at revenue and customers and tried to build models. And last two years, people threw that out the window and it just didn't make sense to a lot of us. So I spent the last two years raising money for my existing portfolio and selling positions in existing companies, largely. I and mean, we still investing in the earliest stages, but now I'm, it's yum yum time. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. All right, I have, I have a thousand questions, but since you mentioned sure. Chamath, I'm going to ask a question that's kind of about him, but it's actually much more about a lot of investors yeah. these days. And I think you've even talked about it on one of the All In episodes, but we're in a moment where thanks to crypto, and I guess thanks to SPACs as well in the case of Chamath, a lot of VCs are invested in publicly liquid assets. Uh, cryptocurrencies are the most common. But of course, you know, Chamath for much of uh, 2020 and 2021 brought all these SPACs, would talk about them. They've all done basically uh, terribly. In many cases, VCs, you know, throughout history, VCs were invested in companies that public retail just didn't have access to for several years. Now, many of them are invested in cryptocurrencies that the public can trade. Do you think this is a problem that so many investors, historically VC type investors, are basically either tacitly or explicitly pumping their bags on social media for retail? Mm, good question. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's really two different groups. So I'd say SPACs and crypto are very different, and I'll explain why. So let me start with crypto, because that's where the problem is. So crypto has created an entire shadow, in my mind, illegal stack um, that is skirting securities regulations. I believe the overwhelming majority of tokens are securities, Yeah, but they're being dumped onto retail investors. And this is being done explicitly by venture firms, I won't mention any names, who are buying into companies early, getting into tokens, and then those tokens are being listed on exchanges, and the public can buy into them. The public is buying into them a common enterprise in order to get a financial gain 
They have no interest in using those tokens for any utility. These are not Chuck E. Cheese tokens. Right. They're not United Miles. We all know what's going on here. And to then liquidate your position in the second or third year of the crypto company, and I'm not going to mention any specific companies here or firms, but you don't need to be a genius to just look at the activity out there. This is going to blow up in the faces of the venture community. Regulators are very permissive in our country. Our country generally, our legal system is you're innocent until proven guilty. But I think there's a lot of guilty parties that you know flipped securities and called them tokens. And I think the SEC Justice Department is in the first inning of taking action against these companies. And sure, it would be better if they had given us clear guidelines, but having been in the room for these discussions over the past five years, people suspended disbelief. They shopped for attorneys wow. who told them what they wanted to believe about tokens and the, what is it, the Howey test that I, you know, listen, I'm no lawyer. Don't take advice from me. I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. You this know, was actually this like the ultimate to... irony, which was that like if you went to a regulator and asked permission, they would often tell you no. But if you just went ahead and launched it after doing your own legal study, they usually wouldn't say anything. Yeah, so people knew, Tracy, that what they were doing was fugazi. They knew that this was a grift. I have no sympathy on anybody who gets their wrist slapped or gets a speeding ticket or worse because I would like to see accreditation laws be changed so that people can take a test, just like a driver's test or in the few states that have gun owner tests, gun permit tests, we could just educate people. Maybe you take a three-hour course, you take a 50-question a test. It doesn't have to be a Series 7, but hey, this is diversification. Hey, these are risky assets. These are non-liquid assets. This is preferred shares. These are common shares. You know, Here's how governance works. Here's how boards work. Just so you know, a normal person who's not in the top 6% of the country who are accredited investors could participate in this. That's what the SEC needs to do. That's what our government needs to do, have a path for people to be educated to participate in these things. What the country doesn't need is for sophisticated investors to then create a path for people to circumvent the securities law and then flip tokens. I have spent the last five years being criticized because I've said all along, you know, if you can't use the product, if you can't talk to the customers, you know, calling back to your asking me about that tweet I did, and my experience as a journalist, if you can't talk to the customers, you can't use the product, then it's probably either a fraud or it's a pre-launch company. And I think the majority of these tokens that are being sold are either pre-launch companies, which would value them at 3 to $10 million, or they're frauds, or they're run by incompetence, or they're frauds run by incompetence. It's some combination of those three buckets. And I invest in the first bucket, pre-launch companies or you know, about to launch MVPs all the time in my accelerator. But I don't take the shares of those companies and put them on a listing and tell people, have fun staying poor if you don't buy these tokens and you don't get it, okay, boomer, and all this other bullshit that these very sophisticated investors did to the public. So I don't have strong feelings on it, Joe, but it's a complete, utter grift. Do you think there's going to be um, criminal response in some cases? Certainly. You say you, you think the regulators are only in the second inning. So that would imply that there is a lot more coming. Like, what does this look yeah, like? Yeah, I mean, these it's just a little NFT I was flipping and grifting. You know, property justice 
and the Southern District of New York and Florida's, you know, district attorneys, like there's a large group of district attorneys who would like nothing more than to get the pelt of a crypto, you know, grifter and put it on their wall for when they run for mayor or governor. And now people have lost a lot of money. So there's a lot of people... Like yep. a year ago, yeah, there people didn't want a year, a year ago, ago there wouldn't have been a political yeah. appetite for, say, prosecutions because nope. people like when nope. the line goes up. But when the line goes down, I assume people want to see someone pay. Well, also, you know, that's when somebody who's in your local jurisdiction says, hey, my aunt took a second mortgage on her home and bought this cryptocurrency and they lost all their money. And three of her friends also did it. And so now there's an actual victim, as you're pointing out, Joe, because the tide's gone out. And those people essentially got a free option because, you know, it's a cynical view, but they got to buy the cryptocurrency. If it went up, they could sell it like these retail investors. And now that it's gone down since it was illegal, all of them can now go after these companies. And so that's just starting. And we're like two pitches into the first inning. We, we are not even close to the second inning of this. It is going to become five years. If if what I learned from the dot-com era is any guide, it, it's going to be years of litigation and pain and suffering. Now, do people go to jail? I, we just had somebody on the FBI's most wanted list who was the, the Bitcoin queen. Yeah. So I, I don't remember a dot-com person being on the FBI's most wanted list. So if that might be the canary in the coal mine. When the FBI's most wanted list winds up being three or four crypto people, I think you've got Pete Grift. <laughs> just on this topic, you were invested in Robinhood. And Robinhood oh, yes. is pretty highly leveraged to crypto nowadays, at least. Did they make a mistake? You know, I, I think it's fine for people, not speaking about Robinhood, I think it's fine for people to participate in crypto if they're accredited investors and if they're educated. I sincerely believe people should be able to do what they want to do with their money. They're allowed to go to Vegas. They should be able to do that. So on the retail side, I do think people should be able to buy tokens or crypto. I just think it should all be regulated. And I think you know what Coinbase and Robinhood and all of these platforms really need to think about is you know, when they put these tokens up, who should be buying them and what knowledge base do they need? And I think I'm a big fan of the freedom for you to do with with your money what you want. But I also think there is a responsibility of the people creating the tokens to do it. And now what is the liability for platforms? I think that's somewhere in between. So, you know, the people who are creating these things, those are the people who are 99% responsible and those early investors. I'd say the platforms and, and other folks, like they're 1% responsible for this. Like, People should be able to buy and sell whatever SPAC. They should be able to gamble. I'm a gambler. You guys know that. So I, I feel fine about that. But I also think the, the the silver lining of all this is people are very critical of this, you know, Gen Z, stonks, Robin Hood, generation, meme stocks, crypto. I actually think what we've done is we've made one of the most, the most sophisticated generation financially that's ever been created. What these 20-somethings have learned in their first couple of years or decade of investing dwarfs what the generations before them knew. I, I know young people who are trading puts and calls and shorting stocks and buying crypto and alternative assets. So I think all that's really good. And I think you learn by doing. So even if people did you know, get burned a little bit by GameStop, I am super permissive of young people and retail investors being able to do what they want with their money. And I do think they understand the risk they're taking. So even the people who bought crypto, I think they knew what they were doing. They wanted to make 
an absurd return in a short period of time. And if they got burnt, that's on them. It's like going to Vegas and just putting all your money on like one hand of blackjack. You knew what you were doing. You knew it was a stupid bet. But you have the freedom to do that. And you should have the freedom to do it. That's my personal belief. All right. So what do you think about um, your podcast co-host and uh, say, this is my fintech that I'm taking um, public at a SPAC. It's to me what Geico was to Warren Buffett and tweeting and posting about public companies. Okay. So let me talk about SPACs generally okay, yeah. <laughs> so that I don't get re-aggregated and say, Jake Al threw Chamath under the bus. Now, that was going to be my title. Um, if- <laughs> that was going to be the title exactly. of this episode. Nice try. <laughs> Here's the thing about SPACs. If you want to participate in SPACs, you've decided to do what venture capitalists do for a living, right. which is these companies are highly, highly risky. You're deciding to invest in Amazon, Netflix, iVillage, DoubleClick, you know, pick the company, Facebook, uh, and then all the failed companies before they were traditionally ready to go public. Uh, in other words, you know, in, in recent years, people have had billions of dollars in revenue in the public. If you want to invest in a company with tens of millions of dollars or millions of dollars or $100 million in revenue, you're now playing the VC game. This is a high volatility game. This is like p- playing Pot Limit Omaha, you know, uh, in Macau. You're not playing in your Texas Hold'em game anymore where it's predictable. You're playing a high variance game. And so we were investors in the private market for a company called Desktop Metal. We love this company. We love the founders. We love everything about it. They decided to do a SPAC. Okay, great. Now we're at $10. Company's worth, you know, whatever, a billion more than its private market valuation. And now it's trading at $2.48. Still a great company. Uh, Bird. Uh, Joby, I'm not investors in those companies. I know people who are investors in them. Those are all getting crushed too. Why? Because the big feature of being private when you're nascent is you get to figure things out, right? And you're not under public scrutiny. These private companies go through pivots. They have revenue you know, surge and then collapse. And then they have competitors show up and then they have things break. They have regulations. The greatest feature of Uber and Airbnb going public after 10 years being private was that these businesses were very stable relative to the SPAC companies that are coming out. So again, do your homework. If you want to play VC as a retail investor, you better be in it for 10 years. I invest in companies in decade increments. I still own my Robinhood shares, still own a lot of my Uber shares, and I decided to hold both of them for the second decade, right? That's the problem with SPACs is that people came into them and thought these were very mature companies. And if you looked at any of the data, you knew these were private market companies going public earlier. Now, this is how the market worked in the 80s. We just haven't had it during our lifetimes. People who told me, you know, who were VCs in the 80s, you know, the Microsofts and the Lotus of the world would go public in years three, four, five, six. We decided to have companies go public in years eight, nine, 10, 11. So, you know, recently in our lifetimes as adults, you know, in the 90s and 2000s. So I, I'm glad there's more inventory to people to choose from. I think going into the SPAC, you know, disastrous companies and, you know, they've all, all lost what collectively 50%, 60%, in some cases more, you know, go into those and look for bargains, I think. I think you'll find some there. But for somebody to take these electric car companies that haven't delivered cars yet and then value them at $100 billion, I was on... You know, all in in my in my other podcast this week in startups talking about how ridiculous these Lucid, Rivian, whatever SPACs were. There's a whole cohort of them. And so buyer beware if you're going to play VC. The VC game is to get to know the founders 
to talk to the early customers. Nobody did that work. You got to do that work if you want to bet that early. I was about to ask exactly this question because it feels like to me with SPACs and the VC space more broadly, to your point, it feels like a lot of it comes down to whether or not the sponsors are acting in good faith or whether or not they just see this as a tool to get a bunch of money. And, you know, the money's there. People are throwing it around. Why not start a SPAC and just get a piece of it? And we can maybe, you know, figure out what to do later. Or maybe that's not even part of their plan. How do you actually go about, you know, evaluating founders or sponsors on that basis? How do you figure out whether people are in it for the right reasons? Yeah, I, I would just look at the core business. Like, so let's take BuzzFeed trading at a dollar sixty nine at the time recording this two hundred twenty eight million dollars in market cap. That company has three or four hundred million in revenue. I think they're going to do four hundred million this year, and their their run rate's about four hundred million. So they're trading at less than their run rate. Their their price to sales ratio is like point six or something, or point seven. This is crazy. Like this company should never go on public media is a terrible business, obviously, but you just have to look at the revenue. You have you to look at the some? growth. I don't, but I'm looking at it. I know this sounds crazy. I'd have to look at the growth rate and the spend. And I don't know if Jonah's made massive layoffs over there. But if he laid people off and this was a profitable company, well, then we'd start looking at it and saying, okay, I don't know if it starts growing 20 times earnings, 15 times earnings, 10 times earnings, maybe two or three or four times price to sales ratio. You could actually see it being a takeout candidate for somebody. So, and I'm not giving financial advice here, but I do look at Peloton. I do look at, you know, BuzzFeed and some of these that have gotten really walloped and say, huh, and how much cash do they have? <laughs> like, we're going to get to the point, Joe, where like in the dot-com era, the company has more cash. Cash on hand and, and marketable securities will be greater than their market cap, in which case you could buy the company, sell the asset, and then distribute the cash and make a killing. So I think that's why Zendesk is being taken private. I don't know if you saw that. They got a, over a billion dollars in revenue, over a billion dollars in cash. They're getting sold for 10 billion or something or going private for 10 billion. So that's when you know, you know we're bouncing on the bottom. But you just have to, again, uh, to your question, Tracy, look at the customers, look at the product. They will tell you the truth. The promoters, the, the press, the analysts, the uh, CEOs, like all of that is secondary to the customers. Anybody who talks to customers who own a Tesla or who are an Airbnb host or who are Uber drivers or who take Uber or take Lyft or use DoorDash or Calm, they'll tell you they love the product, right? Or they love participating in the marketplace. Or if you just look at how long have they been an Uber driver? How many rides have they done? How many DoorDash deliveries have they done? That will tell you a better story than any promoter or any CEO. And uh, these promoters will live and die with their track records. I think Chamath will have a great track record at the end of the day. Now, he's my friend. I'm an unbi I am a super biased source. Right. But I know he's very thoughtful. And, you know, people should understand if they're going with SPACs and they're playing VC, you're playing a very high volatility game. It should be counterbalanced. That should be the small portion of your portfolio. And the rest of your portfolio should be balanced with, you know, index funds and, you know, blue chip companies and bonds and real estate, right? That's what's getting lost here is, you know, these really high risk, high reward companies and opportunities, what percentage of your portfolio should they be? When people ask me about angel investing, I'm like, if you really love doing this, low single digits is what I would tell my mom or my brother if they want to do the work and make sure they can afford to lose the money. Same thing with SPACs, same thing with crypto.
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So you mentioned, okay, like in this back wreckage, there might very well be some diamonds in the rough that come out. And you also mentioned in the very beginning that you think this is like a great time to be investing in early stage companies because valuations have come down so much. You think this is a uh, great time to get aggressive. But let's talk about like the last few years. One of the things that's come up on our show is like the like all these people who had like sub stacks and rolling funds on AngelList suddenly getting into the angel investing game over the last two years, maybe start again, March 2020 with COVID or a little bit before that. Like how bad is the pain going to be of all these different startups? Like what is the survival rate going to be and how prepared are these founders for an actual downturn, the likes of which maybe we haven't seen in roughly 20 years? Yeah, well, eighty percent of startups die, you know, in normal uh, that are backed. So yeah. that's your starting point, right? Okay. Um, and then you know your fund is tends to be, you know, a typical venture capitalist has thirty names in a fund, thirty companies, and you know the top two companies will be ninety five percent of their returns. So that's kind of par for the course, right? Uh, that's what you would expect. Now, a lot of founders uh, raised money when the market was hot, and a lot of them. Uh, were in denial and thought every round of financing would get easier. And why shouldn't they think that? They got into an accelerator. They raised an angel round. They did a pre-Series A. They did a Series A. All of that was pretty easy, and it got easier each uh, stage. And then Series B, they had people asking them to take their money. And then Series C, they had people throwing money at them and not doing diligence. So just imagine you're a founder, you're 35 years old, and that's the market you were born into. Mm-hmm okay, you're going to think about the world a certain way. Okay, yeah, it's going to get harder, but how hard could it get? Like every round of financing you've done to now has been easier than the next round. So everything you've experienced has been a complete head fake. And whatever you learned up to this point is not going to service you going forward. It's kind of like being like uh, the smartest kid in your school, and then you wind up going to Harvard and it's like, yep, you're a dime a dozen where you are the most beautiful actor and talented person in your, you know, uh, summer stock and your, <laughs> your high school musical. 
And then you go to Hollywood and it's like, yep, you're just like everybody else. There's nothing unique about you. Sorry. You know, that's what the transition people have to go through now. And many of the people who I watched up close and personal became better at raising money from VCs than getting money from customers. That is the big red flag. You have to be better at servicing your customers than servicing your investors. It's important to be able to get investment, but ultimately that investment is all in service of delighting a customer, retaining a customer, and expanding the spend with that customer. And that's you know the, the change people have to make. I, I've seen a lot of people who thought they were Jedi Knights, and all of a sudden they get into a serious Jedi battle and they lose two or three limbs. This is like serious Jedi shit. Like, you think you are a Jedi, you think you know how to use a lightsaber, and then you come up against a Sith Lord and you lose your hand. Period, end of story. Like, that's what's happening here. People were pretending to be Jedis, they're pretending to be entrepreneurs, and they are just not cut out for it. You know, we've seen, obviously, the announcement of layoffs, right? We, we know they're picking up yep. and we've seen them. Our founders, even today in July 2022, have they sufficiently marked their mind to reality or are they still are there still many who are in a state of denial most are still in denial sort of related to this topic there's been a lot of talk recently about the end of the millennial subsidy or i guess like mm. the urban lifestyle subsidy the idea that all these conveniences that people took for granted before like ordering a car through uber or ordering food via grubhub and things like that that the cost of those are all going to have to go up as the companies sort of pivot from spending lots of money to grow their market share to actually making a profit or at least trying to now. How is that playing out? Like, do you see evidence of that in the companies that you are either invested in or very, very familiar with? Yeah. I mean, Uber would be the best example of it. You know, they were losing a dollar a ride and then they went down to losing 60 cents a ride and then 20 cents a ride. And so for anybody who was an insider, it was abundantly clear that at any point in time when the competition with Lyft and other services or DoorDash for on the eat side of the business, when that competition abated and those uh, second, third tier players ran out of money and stopped getting free capital, then the network effects would benefit whoever was in the lead, right? And so Uber clearly was in the lead. And we actually see that manifesting itself over the last couple of years which is to say drivers are getting paid more money, yeah. drivers are drawn to the Uber platform, the prices of Ubers have gone up, Uber's revenue has surged, and now what we'll see this year, I predict, and, and Dara's been pretty clear about this, is the money printing machine will turn on, just like Amazon can do that. And I wanna stop right there real quickly because yeah, you know, we recently had Jim Chanos on the show, and he said, you know, look, yeah. 2020 for many of these so-called sharing economies, whether it's DoorDash or Grubhub or Uber or whatever, like that should have been the most amazing. Everyone was home ordering stuff online with yep. stimulus checks from the government and they couldn't make money in 2020. And his line is like, if they can't make money in 2020, when? When will they? And so why do you think- It's a fair, I, it's a- Why, why yeah. do you believe that, I mean, you still hold your Uber shares or some yeah, of them. Yeah, I do. So why, like, what's it, you know, you think they're gonna, that's doable that they can turn the corner and that they're- With their existing Very business easily. There are two people. things to look at. Yeah. Number one, stock-based compensation is uh, for these companies has been a large portion of their losses. Um, and so if stock-based compensation changes a little bit, and that's been a big back channel in Silicon Valley and with the large fund holders of private equities is, hey, maybe we need to talk about stock-based compensation. Now that all these layoffs and hiring freezes have happened at the fangs and, and you know certainly layoffs and, and 
salary cuts even, I think are going to start next. That's going to be the true sign that we're in something dark is when people's salaries get cut. Wait for that. That will be the true time. That's the and true that's sign. And that's coming. You think cash salaries are going to get are coming down? Hundred percent. I think the way it works is, and this is like the cynical insider stuff that people don't like to talk about. But what people do is they lay off a bunch of people, then they reset the salaries and hire people back at lower salaries, and so that's de facto a salary cut, right? So if you lay off a third of your staff, and then you put the positions back out, but they're at a lower price, and people can work from home and they can work from anywhere, that's the way for like a Facebook or an Apple to to reset it without saying to the people who currently work for them, "Hey, by the way, we're cutting your salary twenty percent." They just say, "You Apple just says you have to come back to the office." Oh, you don't come back to the office? Okay, I guess you don't want to work here anymore. You were overpaid. Now we're going to put those salaries at a different number. In some companies, if things get really dark, they might just say, hey, we're the management team's taking 20% cuts and everybody else is taking 10. And then they just challenge people. If you don't like it, you can leave. Um, and if things get really dark, I think it's a 50-50 that we'll see this happen in the second half of the year. You know, I, I've seen the layoff approach. First, it's a reorganization. Then it's layoffs. Then it's mass layoffs. Then it's pulling the offers that have been done. Remember, we those were a lot of big headlines. Oh, I had an offer at this company. It got rescinded. The next piece is the the, the salary cuts. So that that's the true bottom sign. Look for that. It's not guaranteed, but it it could happen. And so we got to this with you know Uber and if they couldn't make it in 2020, I think a lot of these companies got too big. Facebook, Google, uh, Uber, Airbnb, all could operate with. 20, 30, 40% less people. And in a market uh, where the public markets want to see cash flow, mm -hmm. it's just time to shift gears and do that. Uh, Airbnb, like, oh, a third of people during the pandemic, I think. Uber did something similar. And so these companies were getting rewarded in a low interest rate environment where they could just keep raising capital for growth, top line. Now people want to see the bottom line. Uber is perfectly positioned to do that. And what you have to do if you're one of these rocket scientists is just say, are you going to take less Ubers or do less DoorDash or, or less Uber Eats if it costs $1 or $2 more? The answer for 90% plus of use cases is I'll absorb the $1 or $2. And the proof of that is that's actually happened. Ubers have become more than 2 or $3 more expensive. Now, for Uber Pool, will it make a difference if somebody was paying 6 bucks and now they have to pay 9 Yeah, there are some people who might say, I'm going to take the subway. But that's not the people who are the profit anyway. The profit is in the whales and the and the bigger rides and the and the more luxurious rides, the the Lincoln Town cars, et cetera. So, yeah, it's pretty easy to figure this out. If Uber charges two dollars per ride or delivery or DoorDash does the same thing, uh, which they're all doing, and they cut their staff and they cut stock-based compensation, these things become money printing machines. Now, I get Jim's point. Jim's point is like, why didn't you do that before? Well. We weren't being rewarded for that before. The investment community told us to do the other thing. And so when you saw Dara come back, I think it was last year, and he just said, listen, I, I met with all of our large shareholders. They said they want free cash flow. They want profits. I'll give you that. He's pragmatic. Uh, you know, he's a dog. You know, he knows what he's doing. It's not his first time at the rodeo. And so he, he's willing to make the cuts and raise the prices. And, and that's what everybody's going to do. And they get rewarded for that. And then you know what will happen? Everybody's going to be like, why aren't you growing faster? And so <laughs> this is just the pendulum the of cycle. being a CEO and a board. They're going to be like, oh, we want more than 27% year-over-year growth. Can we get to 34%? <laughs> so you, you got to play the game as the rules are saying to play it on the field, you know? And the rules of the game are now show us profits. The companies that showed profits you know, didn't get the funding previously. Right. 
What's your base case for how bad things might get? And then secondly, you know, you mentioned that in the current down cycle, you're still taking a bunch of meetings and there's still opportunities out there at an even lower valuation. How much money is like actually out there on the sidelines and ready to get deployed in the current cycle? And how much does that help? There's a ton of what I call, you know, dead or boring money money in bonds or boring assets and safer assets. And so, yeah, people are scared right now. I think there's a lot of existential and macro issues. We talk about it on All In, you know, every week. And so, you know, some people like David Sachs is incredibly obsessed with the Ukraine. It's like become his entire Twitter feed. And it's like, I thought you were a SaaS investor, David. (laughs) Like, you know, but it this is a perfect example. Like he is very scared about that escalating. He's a very smart individual. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. So smart people right now are very concerned. Some of them are concerned about Taiwan. Some of them are concerned about, you know, or they were concerned about COVID. Everybody's got a different thing that makes them scared in the world. I don't operate that way. I Because I get to invest in the early stages, I know great companies are built all the time. And great companies are built when there's wars going on in the world, when there's famines going on in the world. All these terrible things can occur. And Google and Uber and Facebook and Robinhood and other great companies are going to be made independent of those things. Entrepreneurs are going to keep creating. And in fact, when the market is the most troubled, that's when your selection gets easier. Because if you're creating a company in 2008, 2009, 2010, well, you have to be a true maniac. I mean, you have to be a true mission-driven founder who is going to do this no matter what. And I've just seen it so many times in my career. People who were starting companies in the early 90s were maniacs. People who were starting them after the dot-com bust in 9-11 were complete, utter maniacs, myself included. And people who started them after 2008 were complete and utter maniacs. And that's when the great companies are formed. And then they grow through the down and up markets consistently. That's really what it's all about. So I don't worry about these things. I do not live in fear like a lot of uh, my other contemporaries and get obsessed with these things. I just like to focus on the founder and the customer and the product. It's really, you know, it's one of the great things about just being a simple kid from Brooklyn. I don't need to overthink this. I don't got no Ivy League education. I didn't go to Stanford. I, I, I I didn't get perfect SATs. I just look at what the product does. I look at what the customer thinks of the product and I place my bets. And you know what? That's a better way to do it in my mind. It's simple. You just put the ball in the basket, take a good shot, rebound the basketball, and then on the other side, you know, take a good shot and put the ball in the basket and rebound. And then you get to buy it's the Knicks, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fuck yeah, let's go. I mean, that's a, what else would I do? <laughs> no, I mean, I just would like to see New York win a championship. Uh, I did a little spreadsheet a, a year ago during the pandemic. I was kind of trying to figure out what I would do with the last decade or two or three of life I have left when my friend Tony Shea died the day after my birthday and it kind of rocked my world a little bit. And I, uh, I just thought deeply about what I want to do and what actually gives me joy and fun. And yeah, I like skiing and I like hanging out with my friends and laughing and doing podcasts and writing books and watching the Nick game. You play poker uh, with Phil Hungitz, right? Yeah. Every week oh. <laughs> I play with Phil. Yeah. We had him on the show years ago. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. Phil's the best. I mean, he's, he's amazing. Uh, great human being. Uh, I mean, even with all the outbursts and craziness, which I thought when I met him was for TV, and now I realize he's just, he's it really like, is just truly who he is. I mean, we've had some epic battles at our private poker game. But when I had my little, like, existential 50-year-old, you know, J. Cal uh, crisis, I just thought, 
well, fuck, if I keep investing at this rate and I go up 50% or I double the number of dollars I invest every year, yeah, there's a chance I could be trace commas and I could buy the Knicks or make a run at them. So why not create an outrageous goal? So my my two outrageous goals are to you know, invest over the next 10 years and be one of the top five investors in the history of Silicon Valley and have a long shot chance of leading a syndicate. That's why I bought the domain name, thesyndicate.com, and I invest in 100 deals a year at the syndicate uh, with 11,000 accredited investors. It's the largest one in the world. If I keep doing that, I might be able to lead a syndicate to buy the Knicks someday, and that would be a great thing to do in my 60s. Either well, that or run for office. So it's one of those two. Uh, my, daughter's a, my daughter's a Knicks fan, so hopefully uh, yeah, you can turn so. them into winners. Jason Kelkanis, that was a lot of fun. Right. Thank you so I much. I hope that for, was entertaining. It was very entertaining. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> on Odd Lots. My pleasure. That was great. Thanks, Jason. Hey, don't forget to rate and subscribe, everybody. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We got it. We got it. I'm a podcast. I got to ask him to rate and yeah, subscribe. Yeah. Tell a friend about the pod. That was fun. Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking, sorry, I'm thinking, do you remember that Simpsons episode where like Homer Simpson goes to work for <laughs> Hank Scorpio and he wants to buy the Dallas Cowboys? He confesses his dream is to buy the Dallas Cowboys. And at the end of the episode, Hank Scorpio buys him the Denver Broncos. <laughs> no, I don't remember that one. I was thinking, you know what Simpsons episode I think I'm going to reference? Oh, go on. Well, you know, Jason was talking about it, so if I just do this 10 more years. I thought you were uh, going to refer to the one where Homer bought um, Halloween pumpkins before Halloween <laughs> and just thought they were <laughs> just keep hold, just keep holding the pumpkins and draw a straight well, line actually, up and give you a rich fun day. Actually, that's not yeah, that's not a bad episode to uh, to reference because one thing that keeps coming up in in all of our episodes lately is just the like cyclicality yeah, yeah. of human nature yeah. and this idea that for years investors were comfortable with these companies growing market share spending money raising more money um, in public or private markets in order to do that and then suddenly it's like oh no no you you really do have to yeah. return a profit and then, I, you know, I think Jason is right. At some point in the cycle, people will come back and be like, no, no, it's time to grow a, again. This is your opportunity. Point he made about, to the Chano's point about like, oh, well, why weren't they making money in 2020? And it's like, market wasn't telling them to make money. Yeah. They, the stocks were going straight up. I hadn't really thought about that. But, you know, it's something that comes up. It comes up on our energy episodes. Yeah, exactly. Where it's like, what are investors rewarding at a given time? And so if that 2020... On paper, yeah, it's a good environment for some of these gig economy companies. But if the market is still in that mode of, no, we're not going to reward you for cutting spending. We're not going to reward you for slamming the brakes on growth in the name of profitability. Maybe I could see how that's a counter argument for why weren't they profitable at that time. Absolutely. It just feels like there's a tendency for people to run too far in yeah. either direction. And it's really hard to stamp out because to some extent but, that's human nature, right? Yeah. By the way, the issue with all these legacy VCs getting into unregistered securities, arguably, with mm. crypto tokens, and then tweeting about them, and then retail investors buying them on exchanges. I thought Jason's comments were pretty pointed on that. And like, it does seem to me like this could be lawsuit season or investigation season. And I do wonder if any of these sort of legacy VCs will regret pivoting towards talking about publicly traded instruments as much as they did. I'm very curious to see how it shakes out. I still think 
the regulators should have been there from yeah, the beginning. Yeah. I mean, some of these tokens quite clearly resemble securities offerings, well, right? You vote and dividends can theoretically accrue right. them. So, so that sounds not, like a stock to me. Yeah, absolutely. So why not say that that's illegal or yeah. it should be a registered security and your, where were the regulators? Or where's your 10Q or whatever, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I, I mean, it does feel like some sort of shakeout or reckoning is coming, but I, I guess it, it's hard to predict. Yeah. All right, um, should we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Jason Calacanis, on Twitter. He's at Jason. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez, at Carmen Arman. And follow all of the podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. 